The Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association is proud to support BIV's daily Coping with COVID podcast series. And now that there is a plan to safely restart BC, we hope you'll join us in supporting your favorite local businesses. From restaurants to retail, our downtown businesses need us now more than ever. Thanks everyone and stay safe. Hi, I'm Tyler Orton, and before we get to today's interview, here are some of the top stories we're following at Business in Vancouver. The Vancouver International Airport Authority has named a new CEO in Tamara Vrooman. She previously served as the CEO of Van City Credit Union and will take over the new job effective July 1st. And regulators here in the province have given the nod to two more ride-hailing companies in British Columbia. Ripe Rides and Bonnie's Taxis are the 12th and 13th operators to be approved. That's it for now. Now for today's interview. Welcome to BIV Daily and our daily Coping with COVID-19 podcast from Business in Vancouver. I'm Kirk Point, Editor-in-Chief and Publisher. It's become a cliche to pronounce that we're in these unprecedented times, but the latest job figures in British Columbia and Canada really lend credence to that. In the space of two months, the pandemic has created this crisis uh, that is unprecedented. It's wiped out 14 years of job growth in a matter of two short months. And uh, young people, of course, are particularly hard hit. I wanna look at the data today and the implications with Ken Peacock. He's the chief economist and the vice president of the Business Council of British Columbia. Glad to have you with us from uh, from isolation. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for having me, Kirk. You're looking pretty safe, looking pretty healthy. I'm, I'm feeling safe, I'm okay here. Can't say the same thing though about the jobs numbers. Uh, these are really just an amazing uh, turnaround in our economy. Um, Walk us through a little bit of the high points, or I guess they're low points, if you want to call it that, of what we've seen in the last couple of months. Sure. Um, Well, let's just take your listeners back a moment to uh, the March Labor Force Survey results. Uh, And in March, the thing about the March survey is Statistics Canada, excuse me, was in the field in the sort of third week of March, and that was kind of around the same time that the closures came. So so we didn't think that March was going to capture the full impact. Nevertheless, there was 132,000 jobs that it did capture. Yeah. Uh, we suspected that April would see a somewhat larger uh, job decline just because it would capture the full effect of, of the closures in the April survey. And sure enough, we did see a bigger number, but it doubled from March. So we went to 264,000. So by coincidence... It exactly doubled. Add those two figures together and you're up to pretty close to 400,000, which you were talking about. I I mean, extraordinary, mind-boggling numbers. We should not get too far ahead of ourselves. Some of these jobs will come back, and that's really the question looking forward, Kirk. But in the meantime, I mean, there's a lot of ways you can dice this, and there's a lot of pain in the job market. Well, what it also says is that businesses, in a way, were, um, I, I don't know, it sounds as if they were anticipating that there was going to come a point where they were going to have to call it off for a bit and really start laying people off 
shuttering their businesses and all that. It seemed to happen all in that one, you know, seven day period where people just said, that's it. Turn the lights off. Yep. Yep. Well, I guess they got, they were mandated. So, so many businesses and operations were mandated to close. Yep. So they just, they literally shut it down. And I'm, I'm, I mean, so much has happened in the past six weeks, but I remember just hearing stories about uh, managers who were laying off dozens and dozens and, you know, 50, 100 people, like you said, literally overnight. And here we are, uh, you know, six, seven weeks later, and that is exactly what the, the numbers are suggesting, mass, mass layoffs. Can you characterize the cohorts that were really hardest hit? We talk about young people uh, in all of this because many of them, of course, were where, you know, the juniors in a lot of their outfits, they were in some cases in service sector, parts of the economy that were going to be really uh, hard hit in a hurry. Uh, it, so is, is the impact, you know, ostensibly a, a, a young person one? Uh, it's, it's, a great, it's a great question. There's a couple dimensions that are, that are worth teasing out and, and talking about. Uh, one of them is, and it's not surprising, that this is really a private sector phenomena. If you look at that total 400,000 job loss number, 388,000 were private sector jobs. So it, it really is about the private sector. Yes, there's been pain in the public sector. Some cities have had to lay off workers with park closures and whatnot. Um, and they've seen a, a big hit in what would be normal times, but compared to what we're seeing in the private sector, the public sector is relatively unscathed. So I think that's the first point to keep in mind if we're gonna get these jobs back it's going to come through private sector job growth companies uh, rehiring, but also it's going to require new jobs being created because we're not getting all these jobs back. But I think to get more directly to what you were talking about, about age cohorts, the 15 to 24 year age group, especially hard hit, but job losses are spread right across, uh, right across the age spectrum. The thing that was kind of interesting about the April report is the number of losses in the 25 to 54 age group, that sort of core working age, actually tripled. Uh, mm -hmm. So there was a big surge in those numbers, whether they were a little more senior or whether it was in other industries that caught up sort of the second month, not clear, but they did triple. But if you look at it in terms of proportions, like percent decreases, it really is that 15 to 24 year age cohort, 25% decline in the number of people working between the ages of 15 and 24. So one in four jobs for young people, Kirk, have been eliminated. The unemployment rate has surged to 25%. So this is something that policymakers really do need to pay attention to. Yeah, well, let's skip right away into some of the implications of this because, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember the recession back in 82. Uh, you know, I certainly saw a lot of things happen in 2008, even, you know, even 87, I guess there was a bit of a meltdown in the stock market. You could see some job losses there, but nothing like this, of course, uh, has, has happened to us. Uh, are we in danger of having essentially a lost generation here around round plan. Yeah, this is this is the big concern. So that yeah, absolutely. I mean and this is something we're we're talking about um sort of almost every day at the business council just because of exactly what you're talking about if if the job recovery process is very slow and and I mean keep in mind think about 
the university people who are graduating this year, maybe graduating next year, depending on how slow this thing is, high school students coming into the labor market. We still have immigrants coming into the country at, at some point. All these people are going to need jobs, and there is definitely a real risk if the recovery is slow that this there will be scarring and damage. So the literature is very clear on this. Long-term unemployment is very scarring and, and very damaging. And I, it's it's difficult at this stage just to know how much we should be worried. It's the great the Great Recession or the global financial crisis, two thousand eight two thousand nine, uh, we saw employment total employment in BC fall by about seventy thousand people over a nine month period. Keep in mind, we just saw four hundred thousand jobs disappear in two months. Um, it took about four years, not quite four years, to regain employment to pre-recession pre levels back uh, in 2008, 2009. I think we're looking at a much deeper hole than 70,000, if, even if we get a pretty reasonable snapback. Say we get half the jobs back, $200,000 200, jobs by the end of the year, we're going to be starting from a position of at least two to 300,000 jobs in the hole. To me, that's more than a four-year recovery. So this is something to be worried about. What is there to be done, do you think, here, Ken? I mean, uh, this is, uh, ironically, probably the best educated jobless cohort we've ever had yeah, uh, yeah. in society. Um, do we do we try to encourage young people to go back to school and, and support them through that? Do we, uh, do we keep them on some kind of income support program to get them through this? What What is it? Because it's not like these jobs just simply manifest themselves again. In a lot of cases, you're dealing with employers that are that are also really hard struck and they can't hold on to almost anybody, much less the young people they've got. No, no, this is exactly the problem. I think, I think your first point is absolutely going to be important. We're going to need to see education and training. I think it's uh, some, some young people will look at this as a bit of an opportunity. Uh, a chance to kind of reset and, and retrain because they may have lost their job and uh, that, that particular job that they lost is not coming back. So I think absolutely training education, it's going to require employers to communicate with uh, post-secondary education institutions to try and coordinate what kind of programs they need to get people into the workforce more quickly. And I think we're going to have to look at over the next few years here, just kind of streamlining some of the programs that are in place, if they can be sped up to get people trained and up to speed more quickly. But the critical issue is, like you were alluding to, there's going to need to be jobs for these people to flow into. So we're going to need to create the conditions here for two, two, two key things. Get as many of these jobs back as possible. But I think it's got to be important to understand government is not going to be able to save every job. The federal government is doing what it can. It's rolling out wage subsidy programs. There's rent subsidy programs or, or rent relief uh, loans and whatnot. They're doing extraordinary measures, but it's just not going to be able to save every employer. So save the ones we can, get them to rehire as many people they can, but then we have to turn our attention to uh, growing firms, growing new firms, and creating new job opportunities. And I think that comes through, Kirk, just kind of struggling and fighting for every job we can get, creating good conditions here. Don't. It's not a time to be raising taxes. It's not a time to be increasing, increasing regulatory burden at all. Yeah, I, I haven't got it on my desk, Ken, but it wasn't so long ago that you and I were talking about the council's own reporting on this, about the lack of competitiveness 
in the British Columbian economy and how, how while the indices were all very nice and we appear to be leading Canada and in job growth and, and GDP and, and in fact we were probably you know highly placed in all of North America, we still had conditions that were uncompetitive for yeah. business. Yeah. So as we try to untangle uh, all of this mess and we try to position ourselves better so that as as we grow, we grow optimally uh, back. Um, are there particular things that you, you can point to where governments are going to have to, you know, forego the the revenue grab or forego the the delay in, in processing or forego, you know, a little bit of its own behavior in order to make sure that actually businesses have, you know, a responsible freedom. Right, to, right. To grow. Yeah. yeah, no, it's a, it's a it's a great question. How I'm trying to kind of conceptualize this, and we're in we're in this new territory, uncharted waters, whatever whatever term you want to use. So, you know, I find myself constantly looking for kind of frameworks and and ways to approach this issue. And what I'm thinking uh, in terms of this re- recovery is there, you know, in the in the very near term and in the immediate here, do no more harm. So let's right. let's not proceed with additional regulatory processes let's not create new items those should all be on hold uh, you know we, we are doing fine in terms of making sure everything gets done in a proper manner so let's not make that more complicated and by extension let's not add any additional cost to business <laughs> freeze on that uh, I find it a little frustrating when you see the federal government say doing something like the federal wage subsidy program, but then in the same time in the provincial realm, there's a tax going up or there's a, a tax is going to increase in the near term. So let's not have these policies at odds with one another, at least in the immediate term. Once we get through that, then we'll turn to rebuilding. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I then I should ask you a little bit about the new LEAF program that the federal government unfurled. It, it's still sketchy in terms of details, but but there seem to be a few add-ons here uh, to businesses, a few accountability measures in order to tap into these funds that bridge them presumably to, uh, to, to some kind of recovery. It, what I wonder about in all of this is, is, you know, again, the behavioral uh, history that public sector will have, which is, you know, that they want to kind of solve a lot of problems at once. Uh, and and one of the things that we appear to be trying to do is to skip into trying to solve the climate crisis. Um, we're you know we're trying to solve a lot of other issues involving um, executive compensation or governance, those types of things. And and by tying um, by tying measures to companies and saying you know as you apply for your funds, you'd also better be prepared to come forward with these types of things. It, you know, I'm not looking for for letting business off the leash entirely, but but is there a, a responsible way for governments to act, uh, as you say, do no more harm, but it but also like don't try to rewrite some rules while you know while businesses actually need the support. Uh, yeah, I know. I com- I I completely agree. And I, the, the example you're citing, <clears throat> excuse me, is a perfect is a perfect one because. That LEAF program, I mean, it's intended to be sort of a lender of last resort. So it's for larger companies that have already exhausted other options for securing financing to get them through this. So clearly they're facing challenges. And then 
as part of the program, this, the federal government is imposing this requirement that they report out on how they're going to address their climate change targets and goals and whatnot. Those are very important objectives. Absolutely get that. But it just might not be the time to say you're only going to get this money that you clearly desperately need because we are the lender of last resort. Oh, and by the way, you've got to do this additional burden process. Who knows how long it takes before or agree, agree to do it in the future before you're going to get this lending. Yeah, that's exactly the kind of complexity I don't think we need at this time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and not to beat up the public sector any further here, but one more question on this. Uh, you, you pointed to the fact that the public sector job losses were, were relatively small compared to, of course, the private sector ones. Uh, but at some point, the public sector requires the public sector to provide this revenue. Uh, in, order to, yeah. in order to keep itself going. So are we are we kind of lurching toward the inevitable here where there'll be one of two choices, either either you know federal and provincial and municipal governments will have to do some dramatic service cuts uh, in order to to meet their revenue targets or are gonna have to come back with some kind of new uh, income measures uh, around taxation. Uh, to um, to basically you know drive the train uh, so that they're not into absurd levels of deficits. Yeah, so you're you're getting into I guess the the question is at what point do governments pivot and become more concerned about deficits and start to address the reality that will one day show up in the in the not too distant future that these deficits have to start to be paid down. Or, or at least addressed and, and, and get under control. I think the mindset right now is we're not worried about deficits, which is probably the right approach given the job destruction that we that we have seen. Um, but absolutely, the revenue is going to have to come from the private sector. I think you're going to see in the next year or two, of course, the, the role of the public sector expand within the economy, just, just by definition, because we've lost so many private sector jobs, but government's also going to be looking to do more programs and whatnot. But 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 we're going to need <laughs> the private sector to grow to provide the revenue and finances. And I... I I'm speculating a little bit here, but if one looks out two, three, four, five years from now, uh, there's going to be pressure for additional revenue. Uh, governments are going to be looking to increase taxes almost invariably, unless we see really strong economic growth coming out uh, uh, the other side of this thing, say a couple of years from now. If the economy really rebounds, um, that can that can juice government revenues too. So the search might not be as intense, but. Generally speaking, when I look out, I see uh, upward pressure for taxes in the future. I think, you know, I think Canadians have been uh, generally quite supportive of what senior levels of government uh, have been able to do in terms of uh, significant forms of uh, support for income and uh, for wages uh, and, and obviously uh, in, in lending uh, money to, uh, to businesses and all that. I think that, you know, the, the data is evident that that the government's getting high marks. We don't feel the same thing about the United States. Right? We, we think sure. the United States is, is, a, is a bit of a hot mess. Um, but we can't afford to have the United States be a hot mess, can we? No, we cannot. And I guess I'll, 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 I'll jump in and run, run with what you're hinting at. This is, is part of the challenge with this recession that is now now being created. It's clear we're in recession here. 
But we have to start turning our minds to the reality that the global economy is going to be in, is in recession and the U.S. economy is in recession. So this is the thing that's kind of complicated this crisis from the beginning is the lockdown kind of imposed immediate downturn in the consumer spending part of the economy. But now we're going to be struggling as we gradually reopen. We're going to be struggling with kind of mixed conditions in the consumer spending part of the economy while we're also uh, dealing with the challenge of a, of a fairly significant global recession. So this is why this thing is going to drag out for quite some time, Kurt, is exactly what you're alluding to. And the U.S. in particular is a big trading and important trading partner for us. Is that also, do you think, a little bit behind why, why Canada is not um, you know, speaking very aggressively about, first of all, about America uh, from, a, from a national perspective and about China? That these are uh, these are trading partners we need, and we need them to be uh, as healthy as they possibly can be. And this is not the time to necessarily be rattling their cages. And it probably no. I, th I think that's that's a fair observation. That's a good observation. <clears throat> not the time to be rattling their cages, and it's not the time to get into some sort of escalating trade war. <laughs> and. Uh, I, I, the, the other day, I saw that uh, China imposed some fairly punitive tariffs. I think it was on Australian barley in response to some Australian comments around uh, the, the source of the virus and some concerns and the, the desire to look into that. So, yeah, when I see that, I, I do get concerned because we really don't need to see tariffs slapped on uh, and then retaliatory tariffs on top of the challenges that the global economy is currently facing. And I mean, when you look at the air travel space and the tourism industry, it really does suggest that the global economy is going to face challenges for quite some time. Yeah. I want to take uh, it back to the local level for uh, for our last question. It has to do with, I mean, there there you are in, in your home, uh, you know, and, and I think most people who would be watching this today would likely be working remotely uh, in all of this. Um, what, are, what do you think are some of the medium-term consequences for our economy with having so much work now remotely conducted? I mean, we, you know, we have as a country, I think, a productivity issue anyway. Are, are we going to see ourselves even far less productive and competitive as a result of, of the fact that many of us are not going back into our places of work? That's a good question. Uh, it, it's very mixed. We, we did have productivity challenges. We do have productivity challenges both in BC and, and Canada. Coming out of this, I would almost expect productivity to improve, but that's because you're pushing to get as much output as you can from fewer workers. So mm -hmm. there may be a productivity improvement. Difficult to say, though. At the same time, you look around what's going on in the retail space right now. There's now a couple security guards at the door. There's people, you know, managing lineups. So if that model kind of is what happens right across retail, that's going to hurt productivity numbers because you got more employees per, per unit of sale or, or whatnot. But the working from home thing, I'm finding and I'm talking to people that also find, they say it has definite productive benefits. You, you lose the... Uh, the benefit of going to the office and the camaraderie and the talk that goes on. But but 
It's very efficient to get to meetings. This conversation that we're having, we click a button, we start it. I don't have to go into in, into the studio anymore. So there are some efficiency gains. I, I'm not sure how exactly this is going to shake out, to be entirely honest. Yeah. And and, uh, and the last point on this one, uh, we do talk, and, and you know, I think it was last week that we had uh, mental health awareness, uh, uh, you know, information out there. Um, when you take a look again at that kind of um, that area of what is our productivity, our our outlook, um, our overall uh, activity overall, uh, and and you know, does this isolation uh, and seclusion from a you know workplace, a workforce, you know your your colleagues um, physically, uh, does it does it do you think eventually have you know some data points that start to illustrate um, a kind of a decline around how it is that we're uh, we're generating economic activity if if we you know the, the impact on our mental health and, and the intersection with it well I, yeah I mean I'm, I'm getting you know, we're getting outside the realm of any expertise on, on my behalf here but I mean I can just speak to the potential impact and implications for the economy sure Mental health, I think, is going to be a growing concern. It already is a big challenge in our society. People, you know, awareness is increasing, but it's a it's a huge issue. And I think what's going on here is going to have significant implications for for mental health. I mean, I just look around a few friends and and my my household here. I find sometimes people are good. <laughs> the day is going good, but then there's these moments where they're like, I'm going a little crazy, a little stir crazy, you need to get out and talk to people. Uh, yeah, I think you're, we're going to probably find office workers finding some sort of balance between going in a few times. And then I think some of this working at home is going to stick. People have realized there are there are advantages to it. You save a little bit of money and you save a lot of time. But we also do have to remember there are a whole bunch of workers that aren't in the fortunate position of being able to work from home. So uh, th that's one of the reasons that as we go forward here, as many people that can do have the luxury from working from home are going to have to continue to do so, keep space open for those who don't have that opportunity. But uh, yeah, back to the mental health concerns. They are big. They are significant. It links back to what we opened the conversation with, Kirk, this long-term unemployment and the erosion of uh, skills that happens, uh, mental health, uh, seclusion, isolation, really is a concern. And when we have 25% uh, youth unemployment and 11, 12% overall unemployment rate, uh, if that doesn't go down relatively quickly, we are going to face significant challenges in society. Well, then I'll squeeze in one last question, which is that a lot of the uh, federal support has now started to flow into businesses this month and that uh, we're really seeing, uh, uh, you know, obviously wage subsidies come in, um, employers being encouraged heavily to bring people back. Um, are you are you somewhat confident that the next wave of jobless numbers will, you know, will soften a touch? I actually, I actually am. I've been thinking about this since since Friday when we saw that horrific report, and with the the reopening that's been announced. And though, I mean, I do have to say it's great to take the opportunity. BC has done an extraordinary job. We have done well. We have managed this crisis. Our experts, Dr. Bonnie Henry, uh, has just been miraculous in, in managing this. And so I think our reopening is going to go relatively well compared to other jurisdictions. Keep in mind, we never shut down the construction industry. 
Right. Um, other provinces, Quebec and Ontario did. That's a that's a big hit. So as we return to this gradual reopening, uh, we didn't have the destruction in some sectors that other provinces has dealt with. I think we are going to see, you know, I, I'm kind of torn between another downward move. I don't think it's going to be in the hundred thousands again, maybe just some additional layoffs, uh, some other businesses that are noticing the spillover impacts. We're going to see some layoffs there. But when you reopen retail, even if it's at half capacity, you're rehiring a lot of people and there's big hits in retail and there's big hits in the food and accommodation sector. You're not going to see jobs come back into the accommodation sector, but clearly in the restaurant industry, even though there's some partial reopening, there's going to be rehiring. So it is entirely possible that next month's job report will actually see a little bit of an increase or yeah. or even a 30 or 40,000 bump. I would hope that's the case. So I'm kind of between... Minus 40,000 and plus 40,000. That's not exactly a very specific forecast, but that's kind of the area realm I'm thinking. Well, let's hope for better times ahead. Uh, we know yeah, we know that uh, we've probably hit quite a trough here for a while. Ken, always good to talk to you. Thanks a lot for your help today. Uh, thanks, Kirk. Good talking to you. Ken Peacock is the Chief Economist, Vice President of the Business Council of British Columbia. You've been watching Coping with COVID, the BIV Daily Podcast. I'm Kirk LaPointe. Thanks a lot for watching.